Good evening and welcome to eBible Fellowship's Bible study in the book of Revelation. Tonight we'll be study number 10 of Revelation chapter 1. And we're going to begin by reading verse 3. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. And we were looking at that last statement, for the time is at hand, in our last Bible study. And we saw how oftentimes it has to do with something that is very near in proximity, whether distance or a season, uh, such as the Feast of Tabernacles is close at hand, as it says in John 7, verse 2, or the things that will happen at the end of the world, as we read in Matthew 24, when that point is reached. And so we wonder, after looking at this word, how it is that God says the time or the season is at hand. And what makes us wonder about it is that this is written in the first century A.D., towards the close of that century. But that's 1900 or so years ago. It's a very long time ago. And how could God say the time is at hand? Well, we have to remember that the book of Revelation covers a lot of ground. As a matter of fact, when we get to Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, Lord willing, we'll see that God discusses the church age as he addresses letters to seven churches or to the angel of seven different churches in Asia. And so that church age began at the cross and in the period after or when the Holy Spirit was poured out shortly after Jesus went to the cross and God began to evangelize the world, the nations, the Gentiles of the world became fellow heirs along with the Jews. That is anyone from any nation, race or creed, any individual in the world at all could potentially have been a child of God and drawn into the churches and congregations and, more importantly, into the kingdom of heaven if they were truly saved. And this was close at hand. The time was at hand for the things that we're reading, or shortly will be reading in Revelation chapter 2, as it says in verse 1, unto the angel the church of Ephesus write, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. Thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Here the Lord is giving warning, admonition to the churches and congregations that they are obligated 
and responsible to obey God's commandments. They must adhere to them. They must keep the word of God. They are in a works relationship to the commandments of God. The corporate body, the institution of the New Testament church, just like national Israel, did not stand by grace collectively. Each individual who God saved stands by grace or or is saved by grace and not by works. But collectively, corporately, the entity of the churches and congregations was responsible to obey God. And and that's why Jesus says, if you do not return to the first works and repent, he will come and remove the candlestick. Well, if they were in a grace relationship, then that wouldn't be possible. The church and its sins would all be forgiven time after time after time. Oh, this church is falling away on this point. That's okay, because they have that sin forgiven too. That's the nature of grace. When God saves an individual, all sin that that person has ever committed, past, present, or will commit in the future, is forgiven, paid for in full by Christ. They can never lose that relationship. God has granted them his grace. That's grace. Is that true of the churches? No. Time and again, Throughout history, churches have fallen away, become other kinds of gospels, and God has removed the light from individual churches or or denominations, but he did not remove it from the whole until we reach the point of great tribulation, until the end of the church age, and then he came to visit, and he saw the transgressions, and since they do not have a grace relationship, but it are bound by the law to keep it. They were found guilty, and the wrath of God, the judgment of God, began on the churches and congregations and continues until this day. The judgment of God is upon them and can never be removed from them. Well, this was at hand, and so we can understand that the things that the book of Revelation discusses they had um, effect immediately, even in the first century and in all the centuries following, because God does get into the church age in the book of Revelation. And then following that, he discusses the end of the church age, the great tribulation. Then he discusses the transition to judgment day itself and the judgment on the world. And finally, the final destruction of this world And he even discusses the new heaven and new earth. Well, let's move on into verse 4, where it says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now here we see the previous verse closed with the statement, for the time is at hand, And then the next verse says, John to the seven churches. God is immediately dealing with the institution of the church that he has established. And so we want to look at this 
beginning statement of verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. And we're going to take a little time to look at the number seven. The number seven is a very important number in the Bible, and it is an extremely important number in the book of Revelation. For instance, we just saw mention that there's seven churches John is writing to in Asia, in chapter 2 and 3 mentions these seven churches. We read in this book, for instance, in verse 20 of chapter 1, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Seven, seven, seven. And it doesn't let up. As we move on, we uh, we find seven seals around a mysterious book that are unsealed. All seven seals come off. We read of seven trumpets that must sound and of seven vials full of the last plagues that are poured out. Seven, seven, seven throughout the book. Uh, according to my count, and I did this just by counting in Strong's Concordance, there are 54 references in the book of Revelation alone to the number 7. It has an extra special emphasis upon that number, and we definitely want to take our time and look at this number to see if we can understand it from the Bible, as we know that the number seven is a word. It's part of the word of God. It, it's not written in numerical form. It is written with letters in the Bible. And that means that like every other word in the Bible, it has spiritual meaning. And we can see, for instance, with a number like ten how God uses that number. And there are ten virgins in Matthew 25. There are ten coins in the Gospel of Luke. Or multiples of ten. One hundred sheep in the same Gospel and same chapter of Luke. Or a thousand years that Satan is bound. Or ten thousand saints that come with the Lord Jesus Christ, ten thousands of his saints that come in judgment with him. This use of the number ten can be understood once we realize that it means spiritually completeness of whatever is in view. This is why God says in the Psalms that he owns the cattle upon a thousand hills. No, he doesn't own the cattle only upon a thousand hills, but that statement is an all-encompassing statement pointing to the completeness of all that God owns. He not only owns the cattle and owns all the hills of the earth, but he owns the earth itself and the universe, and all things are created by him. And that use of a thousand hills helps us to understand that. God is using a number to teach us a spiritual truth. Now, the number seven, we may at times 
get it mixed up with the number 10, as the number 10 points to completeness, and the number 7, we have learned before, points to perfection, to that which is perfect. And sometimes it may be difficult to distinguish between an aspect of something that's perfect or an aspect of something that's complete. They they could have some similarity. But we'll see that there's a verse in the Bible that really helps us understand the number 7. And this verse is found in Psalm 12. Psalm 12, and we'll just read one verse, verse 6. The words of Jehovah are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. The words of Jehovah are the Bible, the word of God. And this scripture tells us they are pure words and as likening it to silver tried in a furnace, purified seven times. So we see twice this idea of purity and we know what's in view. It's the word of Jehovah, the word of God. And that helps us a great deal because we have a good understanding of the nature of the Word of God. The believer knows this absolutely. There's no question about it as God has revealed His Word to us. We have witnessed this and can testify to the uh, truthfulness of it that the Word of God is perfect. It is without error, without fault, that It is without sin of any kind. It is good. It is pure. And that's something I think that maybe we haven't thought too much about in association with the number seven. But the idea of purity is is closely related to perfection if they're not actually the same thing. And so the word of God is is related to silver tried in a furnace purified seven times to indicate the total perfection of the Bible in the original language of Hebrew and Greek in all the original languages of God. It is pure, no impurity, no spot or wrinkle of any kind. It is something holy and pure. It is rightly called the Holy Bible. Well, now we see how the number seven is used there to point to something that is so pure that it is perfect. Well, let's also go to Second Kings and look at chapter 5. Second Kings 5 beginning in verse 8, we're going to read the historical account of Naaman the Syrian. And I'll read several verses here, beginning in verse 8 of 2 Kings 5. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. 
So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of Jehovah his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Albana and Farpar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldest thou not have done it? How much rather then, when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean? Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh came again, like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean." Well, we have two references to the number seven as Elisha the prophet told this Syrian general Naaman to go to Jordan and to dip himself into the Jordan to dunk himself or or go into the water seven times. And he did so, and Naaman the, the Syrian general was a leper. That means his flesh was diseased. It looked ugly. It looked terrible, horrible. We don't know how bad his case was, but but any kind of leprosy would have been awful. And he went, and when he dipped himself seven times, not the first time, and not the third time, and not the fifth time, But the seventh time after he performed the word of the Lord spoken by Elisha, his skin came again as the flesh of a little child. It became clean, pure, in a sense, like a baby, like a a little boy. And the ugly disease of leprosy was removed from him. Now we know that in the Bible, leprosy is used by God to typify sin, the awful ugliness of our sin. And so too is the river Jordan and dipping in it a picture of the cleansing of our sin. And it's the washing away of sin in this case. And we realize that only the Lord Jesus Christ through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, when he takes upon himself the sin of one of the elect that he has chosen to redeem them, that that individual's sins are cleansed. All sin is laid upon Christ, which he did in paying for it before the foundation of the world. And that person now has no sinful stain upon him any longer. Of course, it has to be applied, uh, the application of redemption at some point in that individual's life. But the picture is a complete 
an utter purification of the sinner. So now again we see the number seven in a historical setting in which purification is in view, just as we saw in Psalm 12. Well, let's also turn to Leviticus 16. In in this chapter, God is laying down some laws concerning the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was that one day in the year in which the high priest of Israel, in, in the case we'll read, it'll be Aaron, but in which the high priest was to enter inside the veil into the Holy of Holies and offer up the sacrifice for the sake of the Israelites. And that was a great figure and type of the Lord Jesus Christ who offered up himself for the sins of his people Israel, the spiritual Israel of God. Let's read in Leviticus 16, beginning in verse 10. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before Jehovah to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before Jehovah and his hands full of sweet incense beaten small and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before Jehovah that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward, and before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle the blood with his finger seven times. Once again, we find this reference to the number seven. Aaron was to sprinkle the blood of the sacrificial animal seven times upon the mercy seat. Now, What was the mercy seat covering? The Ark of the Covenant. And what was within the Ark? The Ten Commandments, the law of God. And it was that law, the Ten Commandments, as it represented the entire law of God, all scripture, all of God's commandments throughout the Bible, that law was pronouncing a condemnation upon all unsaved mankind or upon all people. But when the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies within the veil and sprinkled the blood of the sacrificial animal on the day of atonement, he was picturing what the Lord Jesus Christ did once before the foundation of the world, according to Hebrews 9 when he offered up himself for the sins of his elect people. And that offering of himself purified once for all, all of those whose names were recorded in God's book of life. And so again, this use of the number seven is pointing to purification 
the perfecting of these sinners by cleansing away their sin. That's the the spiritual picture that God is using. So we see it with Naaman the Syrian, seven times he was to dip himself in Jordan. We see it with the word of God in Psalm 12, that God's word is pure as silver purified seven times in a furnace. And we see it with the high priest Aaron entering into the Holy of Holies and sprinkling the blood seven times. Seven, seven, seven. It points to perfection, but I think we should keep in mind purification. The purifying that comes when God applies his salvation. Now, before we close our study today, let's think of another number seven. And that is the statement of God to Noah in the book of Genesis, where it says in verse four of Genesis seven, for yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. Seven days. The Lord is saying to Noah, you have seven days to get into the ark and, and find safety. And that, of course, pictures salvation in Christ. And any who did not get into the ark by that seventh day or prior to it, they would be left out when God shut the door to the ark and they would perish in the worldwide deluge. They would drown in the flood. And we also know that God speaks of the flood in Second Peter chapter 3, and he links the flood and judgment day to a verse where he identifies one day as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And we have understood this relationship as God has shown it to us. And we have realized that from the flood, historically which occurred in 4990 B.C. until the year 2011 A.D. was exactly 7,000 years of history. Now, what could this 7,000 years point to as we're now understanding what the Bible means by the use of the number seven? And we have previously looked at the use of the number ten or thousand, uh, indicating completeness. And if we put that together, what do we find? Well, when we get together in our next Bible study... We'll discuss this a little further before continuing on in our study of the book of Revelation.